You're listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, how global supply chain issues might impact your winter gear selection. Like I've got some some Nordic boots, for example, that aren't going to ship until March, which doesn't do anybody any good. Plus, a conversation with a master banjo player, Bela Fleck, who performs in Jackson this week. I just want to feel like I'm, I'm doing something. It's a little, you know, attention deficit disorder, perhaps. But first... A recent investigation by High Country News found that the National Park Service buried an internal report that documented widespread harassment within the agency. The Voices Tour report was completed in 2018, but kept quiet until a parks employee leaked a copy in early November. KHOL's Will Walkie spoke to reporter Lindsay Gilpin, who broke the story, to learn more about her reporting and the lack of major changes within the Park Service thus far. Lindsay Gilpin, thank you so much for joining KHOL and for talking with us about this issue. Yeah, thank you for having me. Would you start by first introducing how you became involved with this story back when you were working with High Country News five years ago now? So I got uh, became aware of this story when uh, that Office of Inspector General report came out, and it was on specifically on gender discrimination and harassment in the Grand Canyon. And when that report came out and was and showed that there was some widespread issues with harassment in the Grand Canyon specifically, we just, you know, assumed that if it was happening in the Grand Canyon, it was happening in other parks around the country. So we put up a tip form on HCN's website and asked employees to confidentially contact us and let us know if they had a story of their own and was just really flooded with (laughs) stories from decades ago, things that were happening currently to employees, that really kind of started us on this path of covering this issue in general and the, you know, systemic problems within the National Park Service that were causing, causing these things and allowing them to happen. Fast forward to 2021, the Park Service has a study multiple years old documenting harassment and poor treatment, not only for women, but also for Indigenous folks, other people of color, LGBTQ people, just a huge pattern. And you also have lots of documentation from the Park Service saying they're going to address this. What happened? Yeah, so High Country News uh, contacted me after getting tipped off about this report that you're talking about, which was the Voices Tour. And that was done really as part of a response to the initial investigation, internal investigations that the agency had done and that we had done. A 2017 survey showed that more than uh, a third of employees had said they dealt with harassment in the previous 12 months. And so as part of this big action plan, the Park Service hired a HR consultant to you know, design a survey and do a report to look at how widespread this issue was. And then it happened over the course of four months, the survey, and then it all but disappeared. And a lot of employees that I spoke to said that they just never heard anything about it. And even um, another person with knowledge of the report that I spoke to anonymously said that while high-level officials were shown this report and given a briefing on it and started to come up with an action plan to deal with it, uh, they they just sort of let let it lie and shelved it. 
has any meaningful action been taken since then? Does does it look like from your perspective? I found out, you know, after talking to the park service spokesperson, she said that basically there had been a lot of, and we have our full response on the story that's linked in there. They said that they've, you know, put more funding into trainings, into harassment training or supervisor training, and that they've uh, really taken major steps to devote more resources and people to this. But in reality, those are all very small steps uh, compared to the larger issue that we discovered, which was that people at the top that knew about it or that were the problems were being accused of harassment were being shuffled around, um, that the reporting process in itself is still really broken and still very much a hierarchical structure where if someone is being harassed or discriminated against by their supervisor, like it's, they're told not to go around that supervisor to someone higher up. And so like that, all of that structure infrastructure that um, is clearly harming employees is still in place. So really smaller steps, I think have been taken, but there hasn't been anything systemic that's been done to address it. So what do you think some of the larger systemic things could be, you know, is it new leadership entirely? Like what are some sort of large scale changes that could be made so that that percentage that you said where a third of people feel that they've been harassed starts to go down a little bit? I think it's really a cultural shift that needs to happen. And um, a lot of people compared it to the military. And I think that that is, you know, we had to have and are still having this huge reckoning, reckoning with the military structure and the way that people feel like they cannot come forward because they're going against like their sense of duty or mission to report things that are troublesome or harmful, like that sort of the same thing in the park service. And we have to really shift it and, and show that, yeah, you can still respect the mission of the national park service and the agency as a whole while calling out, calling out the things that are harming people that, that make it run. Well, thank you, Lindsay, for talking about this with KHOL and um, yeah, thanks. You too. Thanks for doing this. You can also hear an extended version of that conversation on our website, 891khol.org. Supply chain issues are impacting the availability and prices of goods around the world. Unfortunately for many of us here in the Tetons, that includes winter sports gear. Matt Hoish of KOTO in Telluride has the story. Justin Chandler has been having issues getting ski gear. I have never seen anything like it. Chandler is the executive director of the Telluride Ski and Snowboard Club, which supports about 450 kids who do winter sports. Clothing. It's a pretty big deal. Jackets, warm-ups, and soft goods even, goggles, socks, things like that, base layers for kids. Those are hard to come by. And then obviously equipment too. Biggest thing is for Telluride and for our kids and families is backcountry equipment, big mountain equipment, all mountain skiing equipment, that stuff. The most popular items are the toughest to get right now. Companies are either late on pro- on some product, late on sizes, not sure when things are arriving. It's a mess. John Miller is the manager at Jagged Edge, an outdoor equipment store in Telluride. He says they've been getting items in November that were supposed to ship in April. 
And when they do come, some shipments only have a third of what they originally ordered. Others are still delayed. Like I've got some some Nordic boots, for example, that aren't going to ship until March, which doesn't do anybody any good. By now, you've probably guessed this is a bigger problem that goes beyond Telluride. I'm Nick Sargent, president of Snow Sports Industry of America. SIA is a winter sports trade association. Sargent says the same supply chain issues impacting a range of other products are also hitting winter sports gear. Factories that shut down for COVID reopened with a backlog. That delay then gets amplified by worker shortages that slow down everything from unloading shipping containers to trucking the gear. I mean, it just snowballs, and I hate to use the word snowball since we're talking about winter, winter sport, but it is kind of apropos. According to Sargent, retailers across the U.S., Europe, and Asia are feeling a similar crunch. Some brands, he says, are trying to get around the bottlenecks by chartering cargo planes. And they're paying sometimes 9, 10, 11, 12x what they would pay to ship across water to go over air and then bypass the port and land right at the distribution centers. Still, Sargent thinks it's a bit extreme to call the gear shortage a crisis. He anticipates gear will get onto shelves by January or February, but he also estimates it will be about 10 to 20 percent more expensive. And he thinks it will take a couple of seasons to get manufacturing and distribution entirely back on track. So future gear crunches are also on the table. Maybe not to the extreme that we're seeing it today, right now, but you know there'll be a high percentage of bottlenecking that will happen next year at this time and so on. In the meantime, John Miller at Jagged Edge says, if you see something you want, go for it. Don't wait because especially like Nordic gear is going to be slim again this year. Not as bad as last year, but it's going to sell out fairly quickly. Ski gear is going to run out. Don't hem and haw too much. But also don't, you know, if you don't need new gear, you know, there's there's plenty of ways to, you know, get a good tune and patch a jacket so you can get a new pair of pants and keep the same jacket. Like it's, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world. Over at the Ski and Snowboard Club, Justin Chandler says they've been doing swaps and trying to make it work with the gear they can get. You know, you may have skis that are touch small. You may have skis that could be a touch long. You may have boots that may feel a tad roomy to start the season, or they may be a little snug if you're still in the boot from last year. But, you know, shops can do boot work to make that boot a little bigger. Chandler doesn't think the supply challenges will affect the club's ability to compete this season because, he says, everyone is dealing with the same issues. For KOTO and Telluride, I'm Matt Hoish. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next a conversation with the internationally renowned banjo player, Bela Fleck, who's playing a show in Jackson on Sunday, December 5th.
With a professional career spanning many decades, banjo master Bela Fleck has showcased the versatility of his instrument to unparalleled effect, picking up 15 Grammys spanning genres from country to world music. Fleck's latest album, My Bluegrass Heart, sees him reconnecting with some of the most accomplished instrumentalists in bluegrass history. In advance of his sold-out show at the Center for the Arts in Jackson, Fleck spoke with longtime KHOL DJ Kevin P. You have a great new album out, My Bluegrass Heart, and congratulations, by the way, on your Grammy nomination of Best Bluegrass Album, and a fantastic tour celebrating this album, and which seems to be half solo and kind of half a new band. So what can you tell me about this album and the tour? The album is a return to a bluegrass uh, format. I would say a bluegrass format is probably the right way to put it because some of the stuff has a lot of what you think about as, as traditional bluegrass. Some of it's a bit progressive, but it's always a bluegrass band. In a way, I'm stretching some of the you know idea of what a bluegrass band would do uh, arrangement-wise and, and voicing-wise. And the other aspect of this album is it's a big community effort. I started out trying to put together a certain new band and gradually started thinking, well, why don't I, why aren't I playing with my old pals? I haven't made a bluegrass record in 20-something years. Why, why not play with my peer group guys? And then I started doing that, and then pretty soon it was like Pandora's Box. I'm going to play with everybody. And so it ended up a double album, just a big creative effort all, all around from everybody that, that made me feel much more bonded and connected to the bluegrass community. Yeah, there's a lot of collaborations. Sam Bush, Edgar Meyer, Jerry Douglas, Brian Sutton, Stuart Duncan. How did this band form? I know you know you go back with these guys a long time, but what, what, what came up with that idea? Well, this was really something that was happening spontaneously in Nashville in the 80s, is that all of these were the cats of the day. So we found ourselves together doing sessions all the time in, in creative imbroglios. And, um, you know, we were our chief collaborators with each other through the 80s. Jerry, Sam, Stuart, Edgar came in after a while. And then Brian Sutton came in later. Now, now, Tony Rice was the guy when you were doing a bluegrass thing. Like, if it was really a bluegrass thing, he was the guy you would try to get. and He would make it sound so great. And we made a record called Drive with Tony on it. And all these guys. And it was just a real moment for all of us. We all felt like we got something there that was rooted and special, a, a neat offering to the bluegrass world that, that was all, you know, we were being ourselves very, very much. All of our influences were there, but it was a strong bluegrass moment, a, a, a statement from all of us that happened to be under my name. So at any rate, um, I decided I needed to do some stuff with all these guys on that record. And um, and then I asked everyone if they wanted to tour. Now, I've already been out on tour with a different cast, which was absolutely an awesome band as well but a much younger band and that was that was a blast and this is like a different thing this is like coming home so this is the third album of a so-called trilogy and yeah and what what, what that. is that all about what is is it because of the bluegrass genre or the the band members i think it's because i pretty much have been an outsider to bluegrass you know ever since 1990 when i started the flectones i've been off attempting to get the banjo, find a place for the banjo in other musical forms. And I felt like bluegrass was covered, that they didn't need me. It wasn't that I didn't love it, but I had done it. You know, I'd done it from since 76 and I was looking for adventure <laughs> and I wanted, I just had a lot of goals that I was trying to, trying to accomplish. A lot about rights for the banjo, like about seeing it as more than just a bluegrass instrument, which sometimes made people think I didn't love bluegrass, which is just not true. I'm crazy about it. And I think it's probably the biggest piece of who I am. But at any rate, I was just doing other stuff. I was playing with Chick Corea. I was playing, going to Africa. I was playing with orchestras. I was playing with Indian musicians. 
playing with Dave Matthews. I was just getting to do a lot of things that were not bluegrass and that made me a better musician. And when I would come back to bluegrass for a project, you know, I meant to do it more often. It just didn't seem to happen. You know, it took 12 years before, you know, between drive and bluegrass sessions. And now it's been 20 something years since bluegrass sessions. And it was just overdue. Well, I first saw you in the late 80s here in Jackson Hole um, when you were in Newgrass Revival, and you guys played at the Virginian Conference Room. Uh, It must have been right before you went solo, but uh, then I've seen you several times here in Jackson, and then a couple times with Abigail Washburn, your wife, and Austin City Limits Festival one year. So after such a long and storied career, how do you stay fresh and uh, excited to keep creating all this new music? I like a challenge. I like to be doing things. I like to be accomplishing things. So if I don't have something brewing, I start getting kind of demoralized. In some people, you would call it a sickness, but in other people, you could call it a, a healthy, great thing. So uh, luckily, my compulsion is is music. You know, to feel like I'm doing something that I haven't done before, that I'm contributing, that I'm doing something new, that I'm being pushed, that I'm not just sitting around. I just want to feel like I'm I'm doing something. It's a little, you know, attention deficit disorder, perhaps. I mean, I love when I get a band going and we're playing the music. I love it for a long time. But then at a certain point, I got to do something else. So it's been a long time since I've been in a band like this. We've had two years of being home. So um, being in a big six piece band with a full of music gods is uh, is pretty exciting at the moment. I can't imagine not wanting to do a lot more of it. But I know that if when all I did was was bluegrass, it started to uh, rub at me. I started to feel that need to go outside. But that's been so long that it just feels very soothing and very joyful. Well, I really uh, appreciate you taking the time to talk with us here. And uh, I hope the tour goes great. And I will see you Sunday here in Jackson Hole. Yeah, we're Hall. looking forward to it. I love playing Jackson Hole. I've gotten to come over the years, I guess, since Newgrass. That was the first time. But still, every once in a while, we get to, to, to land there and... I always look forward to it. So we'll see you there soon. You can hear music from Bela Fleck right here on KHOL. Make sure to visit 891khol.org for more music, news, and culture. I'm Jack Hatlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. Chronically homeless people make up about 20% of the unhoused population. Many approaches to homelessness restrict access to services based on so-called self-improvement criteria. But some service providers are attempting to shift that narrative with a different approach by offering housing first. Alexis Kenyon of KGNU in Boulder reports as part of our reporting collaboration with Rocky Mountain Community Radio and the Solutions Journalism Network, highlighting affordable housing solutions across the Mountain West. All right, here we go. Robert Myers is 53 and showing me around his apartment in North Boulder. His name has been changed to respect his privacy. Pretty nice little, little get up, so... He lives in a 31-unit housing-first community called Lee Hill. The city rents all the units to people who have been chronically homeless. So that's a lot of my books that I've read. Before moving into this apartment, Robert had been homeless for about six years, living in and out of shelters. 
The Lee Hill community was Boulder's first experiment with a housing-first approach to homelessness, which prioritizes getting people housed over sobriety or workforce programs. Michael Block, the chief housing officer for Boulder Shelter for the Homeless, says the problem with pathologizing homelessness is it doesn't help people get off the street, and it leaves the most vulnerable people without support. The problem is when we were making criteria like you have to be sober, we weren't inspiring sobriety. We were filtering people. According to Block, a housing-first approach says the best response to homelessness is getting people housed. I know that every homeless person I see can't afford the rent. That's what I know. And that's all I need to know, because if I can make the rent affordable for them, I can end their homelessness. The Housing First approach has proliferated in recent years. The Office of Veterans Affairs began using it about 10 years ago. Homelessness among veterans has since dropped by half. In 2016, Denver created a Housing First program called the Supportive Housing Initiative Bond, or SIB. It housed 300 chronically homeless people living in Denver. Kathy Alderman of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless says they convinced Denver officials with an economic argument. We would make proposals to say, look, we can house individuals for around $20,000 a year. And if we leave them to use emergency rooms, the jail system, detoxes and shelters, it's going to cost upward of $40,000 a year per person. SIB ended up saving Denver millions of dollars and 99% of the people they housed remain in the program. But getting people on board with Housing First means changing the narrative around homelessness, says Lyndall Ellingson, a resident coordinator for Boulder Housing Partners. I mean, I would say that a lot of homelessness has a lot more to do with luck than with choice. And it turns out that when people aren't living on the streets, getting exposed to more trauma every day, they can make big shifts in their lives. And as a community, you can save money. The next big challenge for Housing First is getting it funded at a national level, says Block. He cites a recent survey that found 83% of people who are homeless in Boulder became homeless somewhere else first. Homelessness is not being addressed nationally. And so it exists in these pockets. And Boulder is a pocket where it exists. The causes are all national and the politics, the impact is all local. So yeah, they do some solution stuff, but they also are in management mode. Even so, since Boulder switched to a housing first approach, it's made a huge difference. Hundreds are housed and supported. And I mean, I think that our community needs to be unbelievably proud of that. Back at Lee Hill, Robert says since he moved in, his health has stabilized, although he still struggles with a tremor which came on aggressively when he was homeless. One of the biggest emotions I've had over the years is a lot of anger at people because they don't get what it's like to go through a period where you just don't have anywhere to go. They don't get that they have a bed to go home to at night. Like for homeless people, it's not like that. Robert says when he first moved into Lee Hill, there was a lot of tension about whether or not housing homeless people was a good idea. But recently that shifted. I think we've just fallen on such a hard economic time that everyone's being squeezed now. And it's like it might go a longer way to all of us being compassionate to each other. In Boulder and Denver, Housing First programs continue to grow. Their success has pushed the topic of homelessness to the top of the agenda for local and state lawmakers. Still, when it comes to getting everyone who is chronically homeless off the streets, 
Boulder, Denver, and the rest of the U.S. have a long way to go. For KGNU and Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, I'm Alexis Kenyon in Boulder. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this week. The Teton County Department of Health is finalizing work to help improve issues with health equity in Jackson Hole. Though the area tends to rank highly in terms of the overall well-being and health of its citizens, much of the poorest members of the local community are often left behind in terms of the services they receive, or sometimes even know about. That's why the health department is applying for a grant to help with outreach efforts, according to Director Jody Pond, who spoke Monday at a Board of County Commissioners meeting. What we will be working with the state on is making sure people are connected to care, um, whether that be uh, medical care or social services. Pond says the grant will help fund two positions, a coordinator working with local nonprofits and a Spanish-speaking outreach worker. The state of Wyoming will likely be assisting with these funds and similar efforts in the future. The Jewish holiday of Hanukkah began Sunday and will continue through sundown next Monday. Rabbi Zalman Mendelssohn leads the Chabad Jewish Center of Wyoming in Jackson, and he's gearing up for a busy week. There's a new rabbi, thank God, that will be moving to, to Cheyenne here within the next couple of months. But at this time, I'm currently the only rabbi in the state of Wyoming. KHOL also asked the rabbi about the significance of religious traditions in 2021, when partisan and cultural divides seem stronger than ever. I think that in a time like this, what we're experiencing is people are tired of the bickering of politics and the, the way that it seeks to divide and conquer, the way that it seeks to separate human beings. We are booming. The Chabad Jewish Center of Wyoming is growing now more than ever before. More information about celebrating the eight-day Festival of Lights in Jackson is available at jewishwyoming.com. The word squaw has been declared a derogatory term by the U.S. Department of the Interior and will be removed from all federal place names. 43 locations in Wyoming, including Squaw Creek in Bridger Teton National Forest near Jackson Hole, will get new titles, according to the Casper Star Tribune. Interior Secretary Deb Holland said in a speech November 20th that this decision is part of her effort to eliminate offensive terms from the government's vocabulary. Our nation's public lands and waters should be places to celebrate the outdoors and our shared cultural heritage, not to perpetuate the legacies of oppression. Indigenous people, and in particular women, know how offensive this word is and I am proud to be in a position to rid federal places of it. The term squaw has historically been used as an ethnic slur to describe indigenous women. The federal government ultimately decides on what to rename locations currently containing the term, but local and state boards can send in recommendations to the Interior Department. The Wyoming Game and Fish Commission approved a new Tri-State Memorandum of Agreement, or MOA, for grizzly bear management Tuesday. Developed in partnership with officials in Idaho and Montana, the MOA is part of the state's effort to remove grizzlies in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem from the federal endangered species list. Dan Thompson supervises the large carnivore section of Wyoming Game and Fish. 
He says there's a lot of misinterpretation about what such a delisting would mean. It would not strip protections of grizzly bears. It would not change the fact that we have to demonstrate that population is recovered into perpetuity. What it would do is it would allow us to have management authority over the population and quite honestly not have to call the Fish and Wildlife Service to get permission to conduct management activities within our jurisdiction. The revised MOA aims to address past court concerns about delisting grizzlies. It still needs to be approved by the Idaho and Montana commissions, and then Wyoming plans to submit a delisting petition to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. Subscribe now to Jackson Unpacked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.